Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get to the show. Hello, and welcome to Maximizing Outcomes with Jim McGovern. Jim, what's going on? Well, Eric, we have a really awesome show lined up for today and a really amazing guest. And uh, what we're going to be talking about is how to use life insurance as an asset in your overall portfolio. And today we have Bobby Samuelson joining the show. He is the president of Life Innovators, which is an independent life and annuity product development company. And he's also the editor of the Life Product Review. He's a frequent keynote speaker at industry and corporate conferences. He's authored and co-authored uh, articles for publications such as Trust in Estates magazine. He's been quoted in the Wall Street Journal. So Bobby is a, a true wealth of knowledge. He's an expert in this field. He's a, a phenomenal teacher. He's a great speaker. And uh, just to blow him up a little bit more before we bring him on here, <laughs> he's one of the smartest people I know in the topics we're going to be discussing today. So with that, Bobby, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. And I, I got to jump in real quick, Jim, because I, I don't think you did him justice. Um, Bobby is, I thought you could have been talking about tech today because like you said, he's a teacher. He taught me stuff today. <laughs> I was blown away, but he just taught me right off the bat. So yeah. He, super savvy guy. So uh, <laughs> I'm sure he won't let anybody down here, but uh, Bobby, I thought it'd be, it'd be helpful because our audience is really, this show is really geared for our clients and uh, just the general public, but we have a lot of financial professionals listen to the show as well. So I thought it'd be helpful to just set the stage by giving us a little bit of your background and uh, the work you've done in the past and what you're doing currently as president of Life Innovators. Yeah, sure. Um, first of all, I think it's awesome you do this. I mean, there's so much need in the market for good education, especially for clients. And uh, to have something like this and to have someone like like me on, who usually is you know just talking to industry folks, um, I think is really cool. So anyway, hope this is helpful for everybody. Yeah, so my quick background is um, I got in the business. I'm actually third generation in the life insurance business. And um, my granddad started selling insurance in the 60s and my dad started in the 80s. I've actually never sold insurance. So my first job was at an insurance brokerage firm. And first day on the job, they sat me down in front of a computer and we started looking at you know product stuff. And I fell in love with the product side of the business. And so that's been my whole career is sort of making a, making a business out of product. So I ran my own consulting company at the ripe old age of 24 and helping high-end producers close large transactions. So I'd basically kind of structure all the spreadsheets and all the product placement and fit it inside the estate plan and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then along the way, I sort of became an expert in a couple of products that at the time were not a big deal and then suddenly became a big part of the industry and um, started working with insurance companies, ended up going to go work for MetLife, uh, which later became Bright House Financial, ran product development and pricing for life insurance and annuities over there. So I'm not an actuary, but I had 30 actuaries that work for me and learned a ton. It was a fantastic time to be there because the company was splitting and it was just an amazing, you know, four-year run to see kind of how an insurance company works uh, and how product really is built from the ground up. Uh, so yeah, I left that in 2017 and um, started uh, a, a product development company, an independent product development company called Life Innovators. And we basically help small and mid-sized insurance companies build products, soup to nuts. So everything from the initial design all the way through to implementing it in the IT systems how they illustrate it, marketing material, all that kind of stuff, primarily on the annuity side. And then on the life insurance side, like you mentioned, I write a publication called the Life Product Review. And um, that is a technical newsletter for insurance professionals. It's, you know, three to 4,000 words a week on whatever is going on in the insurance business as it relates to product or carrier strength or whatever it is. And my main, you know, my main customers are um, high-end agents, brokerage firms, and insurance companies themselves. And then, like you mentioned, I give a lot of speeches and I do some consulting work. I get involved in the regulatory side. And so uh, for whatever reason, I've just been able to figure out how to, you know, make a business out of product without ever, <laughs> without ever actually selling insurance and without just, working for an insurance company. So and word of mouth is, is pretty powerful because I know that uh, that's how we met. You, you gave a presentation I thought was just unbelievable at a recent conference we were at. And I'm like, I've got to get you on the show. And, and here you are. So, uh, so why don't we start with this? Let's talk a little bit about just the uh, the demand for you know, annuities and in, in some of these life insurance products right now because you know th these are things that are that are you know safe in people's portfolios. People are looking for some some stability and some guarantees. Is demand on the rise for things like whole life insurance and annuities, or do you see it shrinking? 
No, it's it's absolutely in the rise. It's, it's actually been kind of wild, um, especially on the annuity side, actually, as interest rates have gone up, companies have been able to offer higher rates immediately. Um, you know, if you think about what an annuity product is, and and to some degree, life insurance kind of falls in the same bucket, all, all annuity companies really are doing is taking money, they're investing it in, in a kind of diversified portfolio of assets, and they're offering a rate uh, based on what they're earning. So they keep an investment spread, but they also post capital. And so you can offer these very safe products because the insurance company is essentially posting capital to cover the potential losses. Uh, and then they're investing in this portfolio of assets that that a lot of clients wouldn't necessarily have access to on their own. So these are everything from kind of vanilla corporate bonds to more complex structured securities. And, and the magic is, you know, the, the idea that the carrier is actually posting the capital on behalf of the client in order to provide safety and stability across the whole portfolio. And so what a client experiences is a very safe return. And that's what people want right now. There's just a lot of turmoil in the marketplace. There's a lot of volatility. There's a lot of uncertainty about how to invest in today's environment. And the insurance company essentially makes that decision for them, you know, posts the capital, packages it up and sells it as sort of a guaranteed return product. And so, so annuities have really benefited from that a lot. Life insurance, very similar thing. It's just that the portfolio isn't, uh, it moves a little slower than on the annuity side because with annuities, you know, they basically are constantly investing in new stuff for every new contract holder. With life insurance, everybody's kind of bundled together. Um, but the need is still there and you still get a very similar result over the long run. You get great, you get returns that sort of mirror what you'd get in fixed income investments without the same level of risk as fixed income. Again, because the carrier is posting capital, uh, their capital on behalf of the policyholders. And they're being paid for that, of course. You know, you're, 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 some of the yield is being diverted to pay the carrier for the capital they're posting. But the benefit to policyholders is safety. And again, in some environments, you know, safety is at a premium. Anytime there's volatility, safety is at a premium. And so I, I, my view is there's kind of never been a better time to, to some degree for our for our products um, as a result of that. And so, yeah, we're seeing a huge, huge uptick in demand um, over the last year. And I'll say even as, you know, theoretically, the, the, the alternatives have gotten better. You know, 10-year treasuries, one-year treasuries are up, corporate bond yields are up. I mean, theoretically, it's a great time to be an investor, but I think even though yields are up, uncertainty is up too. And what you get in a life insurance policy is a level of certainty that's really hard to create in your own portfolio. And that I think is the real power of the story when it comes to the asset side of the product. Now, of course, there are also benefits, right? You get death benefits with life insurance, you get income benefits with annuities, you have tax benefits of all these contracts, and those are benefits kind of unto themselves. But when you think about just the pure returns of an insurance policy versus, you know, a portfolio you could create on your own, it's this trade-off of, you know, you're taking a little bit less yield potentially than what you would do if you did the portfolio yourself, but you're also getting a lot more stability because the carrier is posting capital and potentially the yield trade-off isn't as much as you think because the carrier is investing in things that you wouldn't otherwise invest in on your own. And that's kind of the power of the, of the product. Yeah, so let, let's spend some time on that because I think that's where you know you you look at the, the traditional thoughts behind asset allocation. It, it's almost like even though people see a statement and they see all these different things on the statement, it, a lot of times it's just a two asset class portfolio. People have been taught that you use stocks for growth, you use bonds to manage risk, and you know as you get closer to retirement, you start to de-risk a bit. Uh, but the answer has always been stocks and bonds. So. But I think bonds are are far more complicated than what most people realize. So I thought we'd start talking about bond investing for a little while and, and then spend a little bit more time on, you know, how does a whole life insurance policy compare to other fixed income type assets? Yeah, I, I agree. It's been a learning experience for me too, as I've dug deeper into the fixed income market, really tried to understand what bond investing actually looks like. And yeah, it is complicated. It's a lot more complicated than people think. I think it also involves a lot of trade-offs that are not particularly intuitive. And so, you know, things like, okay, so you want a higher yield. All right, well, that means that you invest in longer duration bonds. So rather than buying a two-year bond, you might buy a 10-year bond or 20-year bond. All right, well, as you buy a 20-year bond, you may get a higher yield, but you're also taking more uh, principal risk because as interest rates go up and down, that changes the price of the bond. The longer the bond, the more that impact is on the price of the bond over time. So if you're going to hold it to maturity, no big deal. If you're going to access that portfolio for liquidity, which a lot of clients are going to do in, in you know their retirement period, they're going to use these bonds for income. Well, now you've got potential capital gains and losses floating around in a, in a bond portfolio that's supposed to be stable and secure. So you know, how do you mitigate those capital gains and losses while well, you choose shorter duration bonds. Well, yeah, but then you get less yields. So there's like really Double complex, 
Yeah, it's a double-edged sword. Or, you know, you say, okay, well, where do I fall on the credit spectrum? So maybe I want a triple A bond versus double A bond versus an A bond versus a triple B bond. All right, well, what company is issuing it? Is it a company that's going to be easily disrupted by some new technology? Is it a company that Campbell's soup that's always around selling soup? So there's there's a lot of questions that come in on if you think about equity investing, right? You really need to understand the company that you're investing in. The, the same is also true for fixed income and actually maybe more so because you have these sort of uh, individual risks for certain companies on their business models that would also impact the equity side and the fixed income side that may not be cut, caught in just the rating itself because that's a financial strength statement, not a future paying prospect statement in a disruptive environment. So it's just really complicated. And then when you kind of layer taxes on top of it, there's a muni market, which is its own sort of thing. So when you dig into fixed income investing, from my vantage point, it's just way more complex than people think. And there are tools to handle that. I mean, you can buy bond funds, you can buy ETFs, you can buy stuff that tries to simplify it. But at the end of the day, for clients investing in fixed income, you know, their long-term experience of that asset class is going to be contingent on how exactly they approach the asset class and how exactly they invest. And it's just sort of a, a paralyzing array of potential decisions and then if you kind of take one step further and you say, all right, so that's what I've talked about so far is just traditional bond investing. What about structured securities? Um, what about specialty credit? What about MLPs? What about REITs? You know, all these types of, of investments are kind of quasi fixed income investments that have other features, whether it's on the credit side or on the liquidity side or on the rate side, like how they pay the rate, if it's a coupon or a floating rate, um, is it subordinated debt? Is it prime? Like when you dig into the more complex side of it, then it gets even more complicated. And now you're kind of saying, all right, so what trade-offs are embedded in these fixed income investments that are not in corporate bonds? And how do these things look in different environments? CLOs, for example, it's a huge part of the market. These are collateralized loan obligations. These are bank loans made to middle market firms that are oftentimes not able to access the bond market because they don't have appropriate credit quality. And yet we can take these loans, package them up into um, securitized products. They then get rated by the ratings agency. So if you look at a AAA bond versus a AAA tranche of a CLO, you're going to get a higher yield out of the CLO tranche. But the CLO tranche has its own complexities. And so, so it's a really, I just think it's really tough for people actually to invest in the bond market. To your point, it's, it's very simple, right? 60-40 portfolio, that's great. Go out and buy some stocks and go out and buy some bonds. I would argue the stock part is probably the easier side of the equation. The bond part is actually quite a bit more difficult, especially if you're using bonds for diversification, um, and which is one of the key tenets of modern portfolio theory is that bonds and stocks are not correlated. And what we saw in 2022 is that they were correlated because we had credit shocks and we had interest rates increase, which means bond values dropped last year, probably the worst year in bonds in a very long time, and equities got hit. And that sort of upends the whole theory of diversification. These two things are not supposed to move together, and yet they did. And I think increasingly we're seeing things like that that make you think, gosh, like, is this, is this actually, is the 60-40 portfolio, is this sort of bond stock diversification play, is it actually doing what I want it to do? It may do it in the long run, but, you know, we never get to the long run. We always live in the short run, right? That's no, right. Yeah. And so in the short run, you see these changes that, yeah, even if 20-year horizon works the way you're supposed to work, like, you know, when you're, especially for pre-retirees and retirees, they're more worried about the two to five year time horizon, not the 20 year time horizon. And so that's where I think the challenge comes in with traditional fixed income. Right. That's one of the things I always say to folks is that, you know, it, it's easy to look back through history and say markets have always recovered. doesn't matter if it's the stock market, the bond market, the commodities market, they always recover, but that doesn't mean the end investor recovers because there's people that are retiring. They're sending their kids to college. I mean, they're, they're having to take withdrawals from this portfolio. They thought that, well, one asset class went down, the other in theory, should go up, and it didn't. Yep. And they may not have other places to turn to to buy their portfolio time to recover. Yeah, not and not without giving up something. So if you want that level of safety and stability, cash. But cash doesn't really yield anything. And that's that's the hard part is how do you get all these attributes that you want in one portfolio properly managed? And it's just I think it's just much harder to do. To your point, everybody's got different fact patterns. It's much harder harder to create a portfolio to match the fact pattern. You know, the other thing is a lot of times people have unexpected expenses or unexpected situations. And so even if you ladder that portfolio up the right way and you get your fixed income allocation done so that you kind of say, okay, I've got these expected outflows, anything that changes will put you at the mercy of the current value of the portfolio. So there's not a lot of flexibility for changes in the plan as it relates to the portfolio composition. And that's, that's hard, I think, for people to wrap their heads around. They're going, 
And by the way, for the last 30 years, that's been fine because if interest rates have gone down, being wrong and accessing liquidity on a bond portfolio is not a problem because the value of the bonds has gone up while you've been waiting. That right. is in a rising rate environment, that dynamic flips. So in a lot of ways, I think for 30 years, people have thought, I don't really need to deal with these issues because bond prices always go up because interest rates are always going down. Well, in a rising rate environment, we get a completely different phenomenon playing out. And there's also, you know, it's not just the the, the liquidity issues, but you also have the tax issues. You know, a lot of these 60-40 portfolios are not all tax sheltered. And people have these in regular brokerage accounts or, or managed portfolios that are just in their own name or in joint name. So as they're as they're clipping these bond coupons or getting some interest payments, they also have to pay the IRS. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want to avoid that, and then you go to the muni bond world, which, you know, one of my best friends is a muni bond trader, and he and I will joke around about whatever bond he's, you know, trading these days or whatever, you know, and it's, 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 uh, you know, it's the waterworks of Birmingham, Alabama, or it's uh, Baltimore city, you know, infrastructure. It's like, it's stuff that nobody, like as an individual investor, it would be exceedingly difficult to have an opinion about the financial strength of, you know, the city of San Diego, for example. And yet that is, that's what you got to do. If you want to get a tax advantage um, on a bond, you have to go into the muni bond space, which is, again, it's, it's kind of its whole, its own market. And also those prices are depressed. I'm sorry, those prices are higher, the yields are depressed because high net worth investors go after those bonds for the tax advantages. And so you're always also calculating, you know, the advantage the 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 yield disadvantage of a muni and saying, is it worth it to me? What tax bracket am I in? What tax bracket do I expect to be in? It, so it's also a pretty complex tax calculation to even decide if you want to go into munis. It just it's really hard. There's just a lot more to it. Then, then I th there's a reason why in the 1980s bonds were the hot asset class. Like there's a reason right. why, you know, back then everyone talked about fixed income. It's because it's the more complex of the two versus equity investing. That's right. And you can't just jump in your online trading account and you decide you want to buy shares of Microsoft or Apple. You click a couple buttons and it's yours. Uh, it's not the same when you're buying a bond. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And I think bond funds have come a long way in helping people get access to a diversified bond portfolio, but the funds themselves are still making these sort of bets that have real implications for clients. And, and even the target, like think about a target date fund, theoretically, that's kind of a way around this issue is they'll ladder their portfolio for you. But yeah, but then you got to be exactly sure that your target date is actually your target date and things change. And that's, that's right. yeah. So it's and, just, there's just not a lot of flexibility built into it. That's right. And then you also have that, that kind of forced path on when you're going to be you know, moving more towards fixed income and the amount is sometimes a little bit murky for people to figure out. So and we're not saying don't buy bonds. We're just saying that there, there's a lot of complexities here that I think is much more than meets the eye. Yeah, agreed. So you know, when it comes to life insurance and, and using that as an asset and, and an alternative to some of these fixed income strategies, I mean, this is not a new product. This is not something that just like was an idea that popped up, you know, a couple of decades ago. I mean, life insurance products have been around like whole life specifically has been around for how long now, Bobby? Uh, the, the book I've read years. on it. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. I, when I think of it, I think of like generally the mid 1800s is kind of when this product came into marketplace. Um, and, and it was, you know, there's actually a great book on this. If anybody's really needing a, a, a book to read and they're willing to, you know, dive deep into a weird subject, but there's a great book out there called the story of life insurance, um, written in 1906, I think so I actually pulled a prize winning author. So it's a very well-written, well-researched, um, engaging read. And it's about the history of the insurance industry in the 1800s. And, you know, these products that they were selling in the 1800s were, are basically what we have today in whole life. Now, the good news is the regulations are a lot better. You know, there was a lot of shady stuff that happened back then. We've got a much, our regulatory environment has hardened up a lot. So the, 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 but the but the basic math of the products is effectively the same. So yeah, these are long-term tried and true tactics uh, uh, products. And what's also interesting is, you know, back when you read the book, they talk about how the biggest financial institutions in the U.S. were life insurance companies. And so there was a time where life insurance, you know, was the kind of primary savings vehicle for a lot of Americans. That's obviously now been suppl supplanted by you know, traditional in uh, investment management. But but life insurance used to have that pillar. And I think the reason why it did was a lot of the reasons why this sort of logic plays out today, which is that if you think back to the mid 1800s or even the early 1900s or whatever it is, people didn't really have access to, to institutional investments. You know, if you wanted to go buy a bond, it was really hard to do for an individual investor. And so how do you get access to those types of returns? Well, you, you pull your money in with a lot of other people. And part of that pooling of the money means it needs to be invested. And the insurance company can invest in stuff and create a diversified portfolio that policyholders couldn't. And they and then policyholders through a mutual company structure uh, are effectively guaranteed the benefits of that 
and to share in the returns of that. And so that concept was really why in the 1800s and, and later, you know, individual investors used life insurance. It was a way to kind of pool assets, get returns, get stability, have the company post the capital for them. So the company basically takes the asset risk and passes the, whatever's left over back to the policyholders. That concept, I think, still applies today. Um, when you think about where whole life fits in the kind of overall financial plan for a customer, there's still this need for safe, stable returns that mirror, you know, market-based returns, but without the risk, without the liquidity considerations. And that's still what whole life does today. And that's what it did back then too. Right. And you know, we're focusing mostly on on the the asset of the cash value here on, on the show today. But there's also, like you mentioned, there's these other benefits. Like, yeah, you're 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 trying to save and grow money for the future and you want it to be stable. But also if things don't go well, you know, if you if you die, if you get sick, if you if you're uh, if you're sued, I mean you're, you have a lot of protections in place inside of the, the contract. And I, I just think it's amazing when, when you think of any product that has been around since the 1800s, if it's been relatively unchanged, that means that there's something in that product that is still driving a lot of consumer demand. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, it's been enhanced over the years, but the core product itself is 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 solid. Yeah, the core product, the, the core product, and the core concept um, absolutely remain. It's remarkable. I mean, it really is amazing reading that book, knowing what we know now. I mean, that book was written again in 1906, so. They're talking about the 1890s as you know, as we would write about the Great Financial Crisis. I mean, that's how that's how close it was. And so, here, you know, reading this book and you know, hearing him kind of process through how whole life should work and how whole life does work, it's just remarkable how similar it is, you know, to to what we see today. And and you brought up the benefits. I mean, I think a lot of times people in our business get really caught up on the kind of you know the asset class characteristics. But at the end of the day, and this is true in this book, and it's true now, the, the chief and primary benefit is the death benefit. The death benefit is what drives all the other benefits in the contract. You can't have a cash value. Um, without a death benefit. I mean, it, it, because ultimately the cash value is there to support the death benefit. And I think a lot of people who look at life insurance as a place to, uh, to as an alternative asset class, de sort of de-emphasize for themselves the value of the death benefit. And I would equate that to flood insurance. Like everybody wants flood insurance when the hurricane's coming, but you're not thinking about flood insurance when the hurricane's not coming. It's the same thing for death benefit. People say they don't care about the death benefit or they don't need more death benefit until they become uninsurable. And you know, you're much more likely to become uninsurable in your 40s, for example, than you are actually to die in your 40s. And when that happens, uh, you know, from cancer or whatever else you may get, then then that benefit really matters for a lot, not just for you, but also for your family. And it's paid on a tax-free basis. The benefit is enormously valuable. Um, and, and it's and it's a it's a it's an add-on feature that you cannot get in any other sort of strategy out there. There's no bond with, I mean, actually there is a bond with the death benefit, sort of a weird part of the market. <laughs> it's a totally different thing, but but in general, nobody buys it, right? But it, so this is sort of like the asset class where you have this sort of mortality hedge layered on top of this kind of fixed income strategy, and it's just a really unique vehicle that really you can't replicate anywhere else. So let's talk about what the what the components are of a whole life policy and how the insurance company invests, because I think that'll help our listeners understand why the policy behaves the way it does. So yeah, it's, can you talk a little bit about just policy design and how companies invest and safety and those kinds of things? Sure. Yeah. So it's it's really simple. I think a lot of times people get hung up and think that life insurance is complex. Life insurance is not complex. What life insurance is, is different. And the lexicon and language of life insurance, I think, can be intimidating. But the basic concept is very simple. The basic idea is that you have uh, you pay a, a level premium. So we'll use whole life because it's easy. Fixed premium. You know exactly what it is in your contract. Um, when you pay that premium, what happens behind the scenes is expenses are deducted from that premium payment. So you've got certain expenses coming out. Whatever's left over is eligible to earn interest. Interest comes in the form of uh, a dividend interest rate. So it's credited interest, just like a savings account, for example. And that gets added to your policy. It buys a little bit more insurance if that's what you want. Otherwise, you can take it in cash. There's all sorts of different options, but we'll keep it simple, right? You credit it to the values of the contract. It buys a little bit extra policy. It buys a little bit extra death benefit. Basically, buys a little single premium policy that's fully paid up, and and then you roll it forward to the next year. So essentially, what happens is you you know you pay a premium, policy charges come out, whatever's left over earns interest, and then that process repeats every month or every year, whatever the cycle is for your premium payments, and that's and that's really how it works. So over time, what happens is you accrue a value in the contract from paying more than the policy charges. So where do the policy charges come from? Well, the policy charges are first and foremost there to obviously pay for the mortality components of the contract. So the mortality benefit is a real benefit. You've got to pay for it. 
And that's the risk pooling nature of a life insurance policy. So you spread that mortality risk across a million policyholders. You've got a pretty good idea of how much it should cost in terms of what claims you're actually going to get. So that's part of it. Um, there are state premium taxes that are pretty, you know, 2%, 3% of the premium. There's obviously overhead, commissions, all that stuff gets built into the cost structure. Uh, and then again, whatever's left over is is just earning interest and growing over time. And eventually, uh, in a whole life contract, the, the, the cash values have to equal the death benefit, which means the policy, we, we say it endows or it completes. And so at that point, your death benefit's equal to your cash value, and there's no more policy charges. All you're doing is just earning interest on the on the cash rate. And that usually happens at age 100 or age 121. And so the idea is you get permanent life insurance for life um, and, and you're growing this value in the contract that will ultimately equal the death benefit. The policy itself kind of completes at that point in time. And those are kind of the structures of the, of the contract. So the two main kind of things you, you should be thinking about are, okay, what, what are the expenses? And the expenses are certainly important. That's kind of the efficiency of the contract. And then also, what am I earning in terms of interest? And so you can kind of get a feel for this looking at, at companies that sell whole life because you'll see this kind of dividend payout. You'll see maybe a billion dollars or $2 billion or whatever the number is. And that's real money they're paying back to their policyholders. Well, what, what is that dividend? Well, that dividend is a reflection of the uh, mortality, actual mortality experience relative to what was priced in the premium, the actual expenses relative to what was priced in the premium, and the actual interest relative to what was priced in the premium. And so when you get that dividend, it, you know, that's a real value that shows back up in your contract and grows your cash value beyond the guarantees. How does a carrier do that? Well, they take the money, right? Well, first of all, they run their business efficiently. So they manage expenses. They underwrite policies effectively. So they manage mortality risk. And then the third piece is they go out and they invest in a whole bunch of stuff to try to generate a yield that is market competitive. Um, and then they will transfer that yield to the policyholders in the form of an interest rate. So let me just stop there, Jim. Is that what, how you feel about that explanation? <laughs> Anything yeah, I should I, add to that? No, I, I think it's great because I, I think one of the, there's so many misperceptions about whole life insurance. I mean, some of the articles people send me, I'm like, this this is in the wrong section of the library. <laughs> this is not uh, this is not a true story here. Um, but I'll hear people say things like, "Oh, it, it you know later in life, you know when you die, the insurance company keeps your cash value," and it's no. like completely not true. Yeah. Um, and I just want to clarify that that's a that's what Bobby was talking about when he said that the policy endows. What he's saying is that the cash value now equals the death benefit, and that means that the carrier they don't have any more they don't have any more mortality risk. It's actually a tough there. Yeah, and they don't charge you for it. I mean, I think that's a, they, you know, people say, oh, they keep your cash value. It's like, well, yeah, they they the cash value is a part of your death benefit, and they only charge you for the mortality risk on the difference between your cash value. And your death benefit. So yeah, the cash value is your money, but they also weren't charging mortality costs for that. So it's a it's a complete misunderstanding of how the financials work. It'd be one thing if the carrier was charging you a mortality cost. Let's say you had a million dollar death benefit, eight hundred thousand dollars of it is cash value, two hundred thousand dollars of it is what we call net amount at risk, which is the difference between cash value and death benefit. If the carrier was charging you mortality on the full million dollars, and then and then only paying you a million dollars when you die. $800,000 of which is cash value, to your point, not a mortality risk component. It's basically a save the savings component. Of the company. Well, yeah, then that would be a ripoff. That'd but the bad. carrier doesn't do that. They charge you on the difference between the 800000 and the million, the net amount of risk. And so, yes, they they pay you your cash value back within the million dollars. They only charge you on the $200,000 that they're on the hook for. So I, I agree. There's always this there's always this perception in the market that like there's something nefarious going on. And look, if you read the book, if you read the story of life insurance, there was a lot of nefarious stuff that went on in the 1800s. That was 140 years ago. Like, there's been huge amount of state regulation, um, tax regulation that has basically turned life insurance um, into what it should have been all along. And it wasn't in the 1800s. There's a lot of squirrely stuff going on. But now it's like, no, no, no. There's no room for a carrier to play a game like I just said. It's like, literally, you can't do that. It's a very fair structure. It's just that it's not people aren't as familiar with it. And so what, whatever they're not familiar with, they assume the worst. And a whole life to me is one of those things where the more you understand and the more you dig and the more you get into the weeds, the more you read carrier statutory filings, the more you read the contracts. Like if you're will as a client or, you know, somebody who's a lay, a lay person, not in our industry, we have nothing to hide. The more, you know, the more this contract makes sense. And I think that's the problem is a lot of people try selling an insurance, try to make it very simple and they try to kind of say, oh, it's just this. or it's, And then the client 
some mechanical pieces don't make sense to the client. And they, so they assume the worst, but the more, you know, the more it actually makes sense, the more we have, the more clients, I think will intuitively pick it up. So I'm always a fan of, you know, full disclosure because we have nothing to hide. Like there's nothing nefarious going on here. Everything makes total sense, especially in whole life. It's such a transparent vehicle if you know where to look. That's right. So let's talk about what the insurance company does because, you know, at the time we're recording this podcast, there's been some, you know, headlines in the news about banks that are struggling and a couple of bank failures, not going to name any names. And I think sometimes people just, they get nervous about all financial institutions. So can you talk about how an insurance company invests money um, and, and just the safety precautions that they are required to take because they're they're making these long-term commitments to people that that this benefit is going to be there long into the future. And we need to make sure the company's around for that. So can you spend some time talking about that, please? Yeah, sure. So come, there, I think the, the whole bank thing has brought up um, an interesting point of view on insurance companies. So insurance companies in a lot of ways look a lot like banks. I mean, what, what does a bank do? A bank takes in a deposit. And they turn around and they lend it out. They, you know, they take in they take in a liability and they go out and find an asset. They may source the asset themselves in a loan. They may go out and they buy treasury bonds, which is what some banks did. They might go out and buy other asset classes, whatever it is, right? They're 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 constantly doing this asset liability matching exercise. And insurance companies have the same dynamic. So they're creating liabilities in the form of selling products and people paying premiums. Those create liabilities just like a bank deposit. And then the carrier goes around and they invest it. And they're going to invest it in a very broad, very diversified portfolio um, that, again, I mean, if you think about everything I talked about with fixed income, you see all of that playing out on an insurance company balance sheet. You see corporate bonds that are short, that are long, that are up on the credit spectrum, that are down on the credit spectrum. You see complex specialty credit stuff. You see structured securities. You see direct mortgages, for example. You see some equity investments. You see joint ventures. You see all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's if you looked at the portfolio, you would, and by the way, you can. So if you, if someone's listening and again, has a lot of spare time, go pull a statutory filing for an insurance company, go look on Guardian's website, Mass Mutual's website, Northwestern's website, Lincoln's website, whatever, go on there and search for statutory filing and go to schedule D and schedule D is basically all the investments of the insurance company, uh, all the fixed income investments. Um, schedule BA is partnerships, for example, schedule DB is hedge, you know, hedge derivatives. And they're literally in there line by line by line. So you can see exactly what bonds the company owns, exactly what joint ventures they're in. You'll, you can, there's no hiding. They, they, they disclose literally everything about their portfolio in excruciating detail in the same way that a, a mutual fund has to do. Carriers just do it through a statutory filing. So you'd see a very diversified portfolio. Now, now what the, the issue has been with banks is that as interest rates have gone up, the value of some of these fixed income investments um, has gone down, which is a natural relationship for long duration fixed income investments. As interest rates go up, the value of the bond goes down for the simple reason that, you know, when, when the bond was purchased, right, the coupon rate might be 5%. In a 3% rate environment, you you might pay 102 cents or 103 cents on the dollar for that bond. In a 7% interest rate environment, you might pay 85 or 90 cents for a dollar on that bond. And so, and so that's just, it's a natural relationship. And so what happened with a couple of banks um, is that basically they had bought low yield, long duration bonds. They had short-term liquidity. So in the savings account, all the, all the, all the values are obviously held liquid, instantly available. So when clients asked for the money, the, you know, the bank had to go liquidate positions where they had unrealized capital losses because the value of the bonds had gone down. And those unrealized capital losses are real losses if you have to realize them. And that's what took the bank down. Similar dynamic plays out of life insurance companies. Um, oh, by the way, the bank has capital for this exact issue. So banks hold, you know, 10, 15% of capital based on assets for exactly this issue. And they make a return on that capital through the spread between the deposit rate and what they're earning on the assets. Same thing happens with life insurance companies. They hold capital and they make and they make a return based on the spread between what they're earning, a variety of things. But one of the, one of the inputs is based on what they're earning and what they're crediting. And that pays for the capital that they're posting. And there's a very clear capital regime for banks, especially after the financial crisis. And there's a very clear capital regime for insurance companies called risk-based capital. And one of the biggest inputs into risk-based capital is liquidity and is uh, credit quality. So, so, so the issues are the same. Now, here's where the difference is that I think is really, really important. When you put money in a bank, you are doing it because you want liquidity. <laughs> like That is the That's only right. reason why you put money in a bank. When you buy a life insurance policy... You're buying it for a whole bunch of reasons, one of which is liquidity, but it is farther down the list. So like we talked about, we, you're buying it for death benefit. 
You're buying it for other policy benefits. You're buying it for tax benefits in some situations. So there's a lot of reasons for you to own this insurance policy beyond just pure liquidity. Also, the money is not easily as you know, fungible. So if you pull the money out of a life insurance policy, you lose the benefits. You may have to pay taxes depending on what your gain position is. And if you want to go take it to another insurance company, you got to go through underwriting all over again. You got to do new acquisition expenses. You got to pay new. There's a lot of friction to move money around in the insurance world. In the bank world, that is not the case at all. You can move money around as much as you want to. You can slide one money from you know money from one bank to another. And so what what the problem with with the bank structure that we saw recently is that they tried to invest in a diversified portfolio, but their liabilities are too liquid. And so you have to, for banks, it's really hard to make that match work in an environment like right now where you've got unrealized capital losses from a rising rate environment or credit deterioration, same sort of thing. On the insurance company side, because the assets, because the liabilities are much less liquid, because there are all these benefits in the contracts, because people hold these things for the long term, um, because people don't want to incur the friction of getting out of these things, because half the time people don't even know they have cash value in their policies, like these, these liabilities are not liquid effectively. And so companies then, insurance companies then can actually do the investments that they need to make to generate the yield to make these really attractive to policyholders. Um, and so, so the structure itself is much, it's much safer because the liquidity is not as, as readily accessed um, as it is at a bank. Now, that being said, individual liquidity for each policyholder is ready. So if you want to go in and access your own cash value for a policy loan, for example, or for surrender, you can. But again, there's always some sort of little bit of friction there to doing that, that you don't have, I mean, th th that you don't have on the bank side. So from a stability standpoint, life insurance companies, uh, I think banks are probably very envious of life insurance companies, because they both take in liabilities. They both go out and invest and, and get assets. But insurance companies' liquidity profile is much better than what you have at a bank, much more long duration, which means that the insurance companies can do stuff that the banks frankly can't do in terms of creating a diversified investment portfolio that, that again, generates in the long run, great benefits for policyholders. So that's kind of the power of what they're doing. And again, carriers post capital too. So the way that I think about this is very simple. If you want to go create your own diversified portfolio, you know, as a client, you go out and you say, all right, I want to look at this carrier's balance sheet. I want to buy everything they have. First of all, you can't because a lot of this stuff is institutional investments that you wouldn't even have access to. But let's just say you could. If you went and did that, you would be the one taking all the risk. With a carrier, they post capital to take the risk for you. And so your values at the insurance company don't show any market value adjustments. They just keep growing. And the carrier is using their capital. And these companies have billions of dollars of capital to essentially true it up just like a bank does, because a bank doesn't show market value adjustments in your savings account either. But the difference is that the insurance company knows that you're going to stick around and stay in this contract. The bank constantly has to be hedging for the fact that you might leave, which means the yields on a bank account are a lot lower than what you get on a whole life contract. And I think that's the key kind of difference here is you wouldn't use a bank account the same way you'd use a whole life, even though the structure is kind of similar because the liquidity profile is very different. Therefore, the investment profile is very different. Therefore, the capital strain is different. And the whole life policy is much more efficient. They can pass more of that yield back through. That was a long explanation. I don't know, Jim. Good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, just, I just want to go back and clarify one thing real quick because um, I don't want anyone to mishear this. So what Bobby was saying is that you know, with, with the life insurance policy, if you decided, hey, I'm just going to take all my cash, I'm going to completely cancel this policy, you just better be sure that that's what you want to do because there are consequences of doing that because like you are, if you're going to surrender the policy, you're giving up death benefit. So I think what Bobby was saying is that because people have death benefits, disability benefits, maybe long-term care benefits attached to it, you don't see, you don't see the, the high turnover rate of I'm going to swap this policy for this product over here. Um, now, he also mentioned that if you have your policy and you want to access the cash value, it is highly liquid. I mean, it's Absolutely. turnaround time is like three to five business days for, for most carriers if you need to take cash out of your policy. So what he's just saying is it's not like the bank where they don't I'm just think if you're the CEO of a bank, you don't really know how many deposits are coming into the bank today or how many withdrawals are coming out. And if we go into a big recession. You're probably going to see a lot of withdrawals. You just don't see you don't see that that, I guess, violent nature in terms of deposits and withdrawals with an insurance company. It's a lot more uh, a lot more stable. Is that a yeah. fair statement? It's absolutely fair. And the the benefits are a big piece of that. The, you know, the awareness is a big piece of that. People don't have, you know, insurance company apps on their phones that they're constantly looking at their values the way they do with their bank statements. So yeah, it's just, it's just not, it's just not as liquid 
it doesn't feel as liquid, but to your point, it actually is as liquid. Now there is one, there is actually one big hangup, which is that insurance companies, unlike banks, have the right, they don't ever use this, but they have the right to delay a benefit payout for up to six months. So this is like the ultimate, you know, everything's burning down. We need to restrict liquidity. The, every contract out there says they can they can take up to six months to pay a benefit payment. Now, most clients who hear that go, well, I don't want to be that one who has a six-month payout. Yeah, I completely agree. But if it's the choice between that and the insurance company going down, you'll wait six months. Banks don't have that. So what you see is a lot of bank failures. You don't really see very many life insurance company failures. I'm going to get the numbers wrong here because I'm pulling this off the top of my head. But if you look at the number of bank failures since since 2004, I think, it's like five, I gotta, it's five, 570 something, 576 banks have gone down. Like six insurance companies have, six life insurance and annuity companies have. And, and so the, 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 you can, that's a lot of the effect here is like the liquidity stuff is what caused banks real issues. You just don't have that same dynamic on the insurance company side. And again, I think the main point is, and that's a benefit to policyholders because they get the liquidity if they want it. Most people don't use it. And so therefore the carrier can do stuff on the investment side and give a great yield to policyholders because they know that these investments are going to stick around. And that's the power of the structure. People buy the policies to be in it for the long run. They don't buy it to be in it for the short run, which is what people do with bank deposits. Right. Because you may be in a CD at the bank today because it's at a great rate. But then when that CD matures, the rate may not be so good and you yeah. might just pull your capital and put it elsewhere. Yeah. Or, I mean, what we saw a lot of some of these banks recently is, you know, people just parked in savings account, you know, there were institutions that would dump two, three, four, five hundred million dollars in just a regular old deposit account, and then the and then the bank would flip around and buy some long duration bond, and then the, and then that. So you just don't have that. That's that's the other thing too is insurance companies don't have big corporate institutional clients that one client can can take a big down. Like <laughs> you don't have that happen because every policyholder is different, so you don't get the concentration risk that you have with banks too. Excellent. So, so just to start to, to wrap this up, because I, I could probably talk to you all day long on this stuff, but um, again, just going back to that that comparison between a whole life policy and, and traditional fixed income investments. I mean, what are, if you're just going to kind of boil down, you know, how that policyholder behaves in the hands of the policyholder relative to to fixed income, what would be just maybe a few bullet points people could keep in mind? Yeah, my, my, my quick kind of, the way that I quickly explain this is I say, you know, if you, if you do whole life, universal life even, but whole life's a little cleaner, right? So you, you do whole life, keep it for the long run. So in the short run, you might have some acquisition expenses. You're going to have lower values. Whole life's always a long-term place. So if you're talking about a mature whole life policy, the returns you should expect out of that whole life policy are at least similar to corporate bonds, but you're going to have better than uni bond tax treatment. So you have total control over your tax incidents, the ability to have tax-free income, a tax-free death benefit, Right. And if you surrender, you're going to defer your taxes until the point of surrender. Um, so you have total control over your tax incidents and how you pay taxes in this thing, which is better than mini bond. Uh, and you have money market liquidity all in one chassis. And for all the reasons we've talked about today, you know, the death benefit is what provides the tax benefits. The money market liquidity is what's provided by the capital and the insurance company basically holding those reserves and that capital to make sure that everybody has liquidity. Whilst, and then the corporate bond return is saying, yeah. Even though we're allowing liquidity, because we know people aren't going to use it, because people haven't used it, because of all these benefits in the contracts, people want to keep these long-term, we can invest in fantastic portfolios that deliver great returns for our clients, even after paying for capital, overhead, expenses, everything else, you're going to get corporate bond or better returns. So that's that's the magic of this asset class is you've got in a mature whole life policy, corporate bond returns, better than muni bond tax treatment, and money market-like liquidity and stability all within one chassis. And that's really the power of a whole life product as a fixed income alternative. Is it perfect? No. Again, it takes time. You got to wait a little bit. You got to be in it for the long run. You know, this, so there, so this is not an immediate thing. This is a long-term planning discussion, but once you're in it, once it's mature, that is what it does. And, and Bobby, these aren't like just pie in the sky statements you're making. I mean, you've done research on this in, in terms of real bond portfolios, real performance of, of real whole life policies have been placed for, for many, many decades. Yeah. Uh, to, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, you, you can also see this in the carrier statutory statements. I mean, you, you know, you dig through this stuff enough and you can get a pretty good feel for kind of what is happening behind the scenes. You can see their investment income. You can see how, what they're crediting to policyholders. You can see all this money flowing through. Like I said, we've got nothing to hide. The more, you know, 
the more this makes sense, the more powerful of an asset class it is. Knowing what I know, spending my whole career looking at this and digging into all this stuff, I own whole life as a fixed income alternative. <laughs> I do it myself. <laughs> the guy and, the guy designed the product who could choose anything. Owns yeah. This. So yeah. And, you it's, know, and, it's good to know. Yeah. And part of it came from a conversation with my financial advisor, who's an RAA, who doesn't really know much about life insurance. And, you know, he starts talking to me about fixed income. This is a couple of years ago. And, and it was like, look, why would I go and, and mess around with trying to create the right fixed income? That's too hard. Let me just go put more money in this whole life policy. <laughs> yeah. That's and that's that was that was uh, that was the logic that I came to, and I think there's really sound, you know, logic in that. If you're buying it from the right company, I think that's kind of one other piece here is, you know, com the company has to have the capital. Not every company does, but the big mutual companies, Guardian included, has a, a huge store of capital, and that's really important. And you know, I think mutuality in the context of whole life, especially, makes a lot of sense. It effectively when you're when you buy a whole life policy from a mutual company you're really a shareholder in the company and so you're kind of guaranteed to get the benefits i mean the only way you don't get the benefits is if the carrier decides to take what they would have paid in a dividend and put it in capital which ultimately is for your benefit anyway in the long run um and, or they don't manage their expenses properly and again you can see their expenses and that has a direct line item you know flow through so in a mutual company structure there's no shareholder other than policyholders which I think should give people a lot of confidence that the, that they're getting a fair deal out of the structure. There's nowhere else for the money to go. Right, because um, you know it's it's tough if you're if you're a, a a publicly traded insurance company that issues whole life. It's like well, you have to keep the shareholders happy. There's a lot of pressure quarterly on the CEO and the and the financials, and they want dividends for you know owning the stock. But then you also have to take care of your policyholders who you want to be clients for long term. It, it's kind of hard to serve both of those objectives. Yeah, it's a mutual company. The policyholders own the company, and anything they're doing, it has to be for the exclusive benefit of those policyholders. Correct. That is the that is the charter, effectively, and uh, that's why that's why stock companies don't really do whole life, is because it just it isn't really a. And I worked for a company that tried to do whole life. It was a stock company. It was kind of before my time, but when I you know when I got there, it was like yeah, it, it, it it's it's a it's a it doesn't quite fit. And to your point, you kind of have to serve two masters. And um, and that's why companies who are, you know, that's why stock companies don't really play in the whole life space. It just doesn't, doesn't make sense. Awesome. Well, Bobby, this was fantastic. I mean, this was like probably two or three episodes worth of content that we got, uh, we got in this one episode. So I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Uh, for the people who are financial professionals that are listening in, um, how do they get uh, access to your life product review uh, blog? Yeah, so I uh, www.lifeproductreview.com. Um, like I said, it's three to four thousand words a week on whatever's going on in the insurance business. I don't just write about whole life; <laughs> I write about VUL, index UL. I think every life insurance product has a place and tells a story, and uh, appropriately sold can offer a lot of benefits to to policyholders. And there's a lot of powerful tools that we have in our industry that are unique, and I try to cover all of them um, in the life product review, including whole life. And so, uh, yeah, that's how you find it. Uh, it's a su subscription service, so costs money. Sorry. But three to four thousand words of content, you're not going to get anywhere else, and that's the that's the that's the goal and vision of the newsletter. Right, saves you a ton of time from trying to do all the research yourself. Just let sure. Bobby and his team take care of it. And yep. uh, you know, if you're you're a client or somebody who's just listening to the show and and wants to talk about this topic and how it relates to you, reach out to us at info at mcgovernwealth.com, or you can find us on the web www.mcgovernwealth.com. And you know, this may be a topic that you would need to dive into and spend a whole lot of time showing you, does this fit your plan or not? It's not for everybody, but certainly does fit certain plans. Uh, and with that, Eric, let me turn this back over to you. This has been fantastic, guys. That was amazing. Bobby, again, I'm just echoing what Jim said. Thank you so much. Great information, Jim. Thank you for hosting the show. Uh, as always, just knocked it out of the park. And our last thank you, of course, goes to you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast with Jim McGovern. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Jim comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask that you share this podcast, rate it, and leave a review, as this actually does help others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at McGovern Wealth Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode, or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only.
Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities, LLC, is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America. Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA Insurance License Number 0F67329 AR Insurance License Number 7119103 California Insurance License Number 0F67329 Arkansas Insurance License Number 7119103 Compliance number 2023-154338 expires April 2025. All investments contain risk and may lose value. No investment strategy can ensure safety, peace of mind, assure a profit, or guarantee against a loss. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Annuities are long-term investment vehicles designed to help investors save for retirement and involve certain contract limitations, fees, expenses, and risks, including possible loss of the principal amount invested. The investment return and principal value may fluctuate so that the investment, when redeemed, may be worth more or less than the original cost. As with many investments, there are fees, expenses, and risks associated with these contracts. All guarantees, including the death benefit payment, are dependent upon the claims-paying ability of the issuing company and do not apply to the investment performance of the underlying funds in the variable annuity. Assets in the underlying funds are subject to market risk and may fluctuate in value. Whole life insurance is intended to provide death benefit protection for an individual's entire life. With payment of the required guaranteed premiums, you will receive a guaranteed death benefit and guaranteed cash values inside the policy. Guarantees are based on the claims paying ability of the issuing insurance company. Dividends are not guaranteed and are declared annually by the issuing insurance company's board of directors. Any loans or withdrawals reduce the policy's death benefits and cash values and affect the policy's dividends and guarantees. Whole life insurance should be considered for its long-term value. Early cash value accumulation and early payment of dividends depend upon the policy type and or policy design. Consult with your guardian representative and refer to your whole life insurance illustration for more information about your particular whole life insurance policy.